What's up, guys? Welcome back to another episode of Behind the Facade. In this week's episode, we are on episode 101. And first of all, last week was the centennial episode. I hope you enjoyed it. I was talking about the top five trends that are taking place or that are shaping the real estate industry. This week, before I get into introducing my guest, I just want to do a very quick shout out to Adama and Adama is based in the Gambia in West Africa and Adama has sent me a very nice letter and uh, I just you know very grateful for your letter Adama and just wanted to give you a quick shout out so thank you for that. This week we are talking to Mr. Sam Liebman. Now Sam is an author and a property investor. He sent me this copy of his book called Harvard Can't Teach What You Learn From the Streets. Now it's having read through it, it's a really good book and it's got some really good exercises or some some sort of uh, theories and philosophies and things like that around becoming a property investor. Mostly it's around about building wealth through multifamily. If you are based in the US, then this will all make a huge amount of sense to you. If you're not in the US, there is still a great deal of wisdom from today's talk. So don't switch off just because this isn't in your local market. Um, one of the things I wanted to mention that's really, that kind of impressed me was uh, that the foreword for Sam's book is from Curtis Sliwa. Now, Curtis is the founder of the Guardian Angels. And if you're not aware who the Guardian Angels are, they're this group of, uh, some people would call them vigilantes, but the reality is, is they're a, a bunch that um, go out and protect the streets, basically, and keep people safe. And over the years, I can remember my father talking about the, um, the Guardian Angels. And um, what's interesting is Sam grew up with Curtis. And so they grew up on the streets of New York and they had to figure it out themselves, get street smart. And that's kind of where the, the book title comes from. Sam has gone on to have a very successful real estate career. And um, I think you're going to really enjoy today's podcast. One of the quotes that really stood out and it, and you, and it actually straight away, uh, I could relate to it. And it is, you know, this is the new millennium where instant gratification takes too long. And uh, and that is very much the kind of the mindset that I have these days about, you know, the way people sort of look at the property sector. So for context, by the way, before we get into the episode, just be aware that this podcast was recorded before Russia invaded uh, Ukraine. So there's no mention of it uh, because it hadn't happened when we recorded this. All right. Enough of the intro from me. Let's get into my conversation with Sam Liebman. You are listening to Behind the Facade and I'm your host, Gavin J. Gallagher. On this podcast, I explore the mental and emotional game often playing out subconsciously both in your mind and the mind of everyone else in the real estate or property investment market. The key to success in this game is to master your mindset and behavior, to take control of your thoughts, your emotions, and most importantly, your ego. Welcome to the show. Sam Liebman, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Gavin. It's a pleasure to be here. Sam, where in the world are you right now? I'm in my uh, basement office in Roslyn, New York. New York. Great stuff. I love New York. It's a great city. I um my brother spent 10 years living in New York and uh, and it was something that I always wanted to do as a as a teenager growing up. My kind of uh, obsession 
I, I traveled to New York as a, I think it was probably 14 or 15 years of age, and I had never been to America before. And we arrived into Manhattan and the skyscrapers just blew my mind. And coming from Ireland, where the tallest building was 16 floors, you know, arriving into Fifth Avenue and you're looking at the, all of these towers, it's just, uh, it's an amazing place. So it's a real pleasure to have you here. Thank you. Well, now New York, unfortunately, is circling the drain. It's horrible there what's going on there. And the 16th floor might be ground level because they're building 80-story <laughs> buildings now. It's, it's Yeah. I it's have crazy. been following. I've been following what's going on on Billionaires Row, and it's like 96 stories and things like that. It's yeah. it's it's incredible. Just, and I see all these tricks that they use to kind of increase the height, where they use kind of yeah, you know, service floors and stuff to basically add floor level. Well, community community space gives you diff, uh, additional FAR. It's, you're allowed to buy uh, what they call inclusionary air rights now. A uh, lot of different stuff to to do that. And yeah. uh, technology has increased so much. Me personally, if I was on the 90th floor, I'd be worried about nosebleeds. <laughs> yeah. And, and what the hell, God forbid there's a fire or something. I mean, how do you get down? I mean, really. Yeah, yeah. You know, I, I personally, you know, except for the view, 10th floor below is fine for me. Well, it's funny you say that I lived in uh, in Qatar in the Middle East for a year and a half or so, and I, I lived on the 47th floor of a wow. tower there. And the funny thing is, is it's not, the, you know, there's no pressure for space there, but the the guys that, the, you know, the ruling kind of party, they basically build these towers uh, as a kind of a status symbol for themselves. Yeah. And uh, now 47th floor for a whole year was a great place to live, like beautiful views and things like that. But every time you wanted to go down stairs to kind of get a drink or something like that, it was lift elevators and uh, and all this kind of stuff. So it it does have its drawbacks, all right, yeah. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. you know, it's uh, it's just you know whatever somebody wants, but you're paying a fortune. I mean, hundred million dollars for yeah. a, uh, for what? Yeah, three thousand square foot apartment in the sky. <laughs> Yeah, that's it. It's a status symbol at the end of the day. It's all about the way uh, people's mind uh, work in terms of uh, we're going to get into some of that today, uh, yeah. as we were talking about just before we started recording. Yeah. Um, Sam, as I normally do, what I like to just do is introduce uh, our guest through. I mean, we're going to get into your book and all that kind of stuff. But just to give people a little context and backstory, can you just kind of give us your early start and how you found yourself into real estate? Yeah, I mean, basically, I was just a poor kid from Canarsie, Brooklyn. It's a pretty tough neighborhood. I refer to it as the Mafia Minor Leagues. Okay. So all, the kids, all the kids that I played with, um, either their father was connected, they were in jail. We never understood that. But it was a tough place to grow up. And you need to develop street smarts, get your spider sense tingling, knowing when something's not right. And we developed that as a survival technique. And... I coupled that with a traditional education and I worked for accounting. I majored in accounting, became a CPA and um, I got a break in um, 1982. There was a developer, it was a famous lawyer, Bob, famous well-known lawyer, uh, Bob Lieb, who was looking to leave law and start a development company. Right. He was looking for a young, energetic guy with, with uh, accounting experience to grow with. So the name of the company is Mountain Development Corp in New Jersey, which is Heard a that, yeah. big company now. And it started off with Bob, myself, and a secretary named Sandy in a little office in West Orange. 
and in three and a half years grew to about 20 million square feet of office space. And I got what I call my Harvard education there. At 27, I became the CFO and I got tremendous exposure, which is really important. You know, it, you know, that you have to be able to have somebody that's going to take you under the wing or mentor you and expose you, bring you to the meetings with the head yeah. of the real estate department, be a fly on the wall, listen, be a sponge. And that's what I was. I was a sponge. And I would read every document. I learned that every document, a lot of it was boilerplate, meaning same document, just put a writer in. Yeah. So I would read these leases. And he once gave me a lease for Beecham Pharmaceutical. Remember, I, I, I still lived at home. I had a sore lease. And it's the size of war and peace. And he told me, hey, do the escalations. Do the what? And what did I do? I started calling people, a lawyer. What does I this mean? Calling, yeah, what the hell is this guy? What's he talking about? And I learned by asking, by, by I, I made my own team of, of you know, professionals that I could reach out and talk to. And I recommend that to all young people when they start to put a team together. Put your assets together so that you have people to call. You can ask these questions. People right. usually charge, people can charge $800 an hour, $500 an hour, but because they like you and they want to mentor you, they'll answer your questions. And I, and I did that. And then I learned to get escalations. Then I read the lease and I read it again and again and again. And it became, it became, I know one, you know, all of them. Yeah. yeah. I used to, this is a true story. I used to sit at my beach club. And while everybody was, you know, talking about their golf game or whatever, I was reading prospectuses. Right. <laughs> a friend of mine still makes fun of me. I used to read the prospectuses because Bob, Mount Development was basically a syndication company where right. they got high uh, network, network, net worth individuals to do syndications. They're very successful. And um, I started reading these prospectuses and I learned by myself from reading the prospectuses how the deal was done. You know, and I just kept reading different perspectives. And then I used my own intuition to structure deals as it went on. Then I left Bob because the company was growing so fast. I wanted to be my own boss. So I partnered with Neil Tepper, who is one of my best friends growing up in college. He had bought a small accounting firm. So I joined him. Bob remained a client. And we built an accounting firm. And we represented a lot of people in the real estate industry. Nice. Co-ops, condos. Uh, um, developers. And the way I built the practice was interesting, I think, was I knew that when this is an 80, you know, 85, 86, at time, the co-op craze in Manhattan. Yeah. So when you when you convert a building to co-op, you form what's called an apartment corporation. It's a new entity for the shares. And technically, the owner is supposed to be that apartment corporation is supposed to be independent of the owner. Yeah. I said, hey, wow, this is a great way to pick up all these co-ops because I would go to these law firms and say, they're not independent. You can get in trouble. I had like 30 something of these co-ops and that built up a practice. They all needed certified audits. Right. OK. Interesting. And I built up a practice and then I built up a lot. And then in 1993, I had a client, the Kinsey Corp, uh, Jim Kinsey. He passed away, unfortunately, but he called me in one day as an accountant. And he said, we're forming a company called Equity Resolutions, and we're going to buy all of the bank's foreclosures. Okay. And at that time in 1992, I mean, the banks were inundated with foreclosures. Yeah, yeah. So we were able, so, oh, so I said to them, I'm listening to syndications. What's that? I said, well, instead of buying 
two, two properties or three with your money, you can buy 20. Wow, that sounds great. So they saw the documents. So <laughs> I streamlined the documents and we bought about 30 buildings. Now remember in that day, our first building, uh, I remember when we closed, September 23rd, 1993. That was the first building. 22 apartments, two stores in a great part of the East Village, $575,000 we paid for that building. Wow. <laughs> it's worth over $15 million now. Yeah, God, amazing. And, that's a, and there's a lot of reasons. In my book, you know, Harvey Can't Teach What You Learn From The Streets, I talk about how that happened. It didn't just go up because of one or two. It's all these things that we did to increase property value. To me, the most important thing when you buy a building is to increase property value. That's how you build wealth. Yeah, of course. Yeah. And I, uh, the reason I wrote the book is because I really wanted to give back. I mean, I don't, I'm done being the richest guy in the cemetery. I don't need that anymore. <laughs> and, you know, it's a, it's a creative endeavor to help others. I got sick and tired of the motivational preacher teachers. You see, they never teach you what happens if the deal goes bad. Yeah, yeah. They, teach, they don't teach you how the car works. They teach you how to sell the car. Yeah. So I said I could do something that could really help people and focus on the education because there is right now lacking the education. Yeah, yeah it's all inspiration and, and, and no yeah, kind of I mean, substance. Many, yeah. Many people have said to me, I want to get into real estate. I said, why don't you? And nine out of 10 times, the answer is I wouldn't know where to start. Yeah, I'm, trying, I'm trying to give them a place to start. There are no colleges right now that I know that have a four-year degree in real estate. Do you have any in Ireland? We have a uh, a degree in property economics in our yeah, yeah, okay. Theor- yeah. economics. That's not going to teach you a modeling. That's not going to teach you how to buy a building of how the guts are, you know, how that works. So I saw a niche in it. I saw the, you know, what I call them, the motivational preacher teachers trying to just sell you stuff. And I said, let me do something where people can really learn. Yeah, yeah. And it's become a passion. I love talking. I love teaching. I love helping people. The smiles on the young people's face. I'm mentoring. I have another student, a young kid, 22, starting tomorrow for three months. I'm going to, as an intern, I'm going to mentor him. I enjoy it. Yeah, I can relate because I do something similar. And uh, and so it is, it's a, it, it's a kind of a passion, all right? It develops. Um, just going back, uh, Sam, there's a couple of things that popped into my mind that we, we should uh, talk about. First of all, working with Bob in Mountain View, uh, like what were the traits? Mountain development, yeah. Mountain development. What were the traits that you saw in Bob that you tried to emulate yourself that where the success kind of comes from? That's a great question. Okay. Well, I looked up to him because this was a top attorney who started a big firm. It's still around called um, Lieben... Uh, Got the name of it. It's a. It's even. He he was partners with Kellerman, who was the attorney general. I was being introduced to all these people, but he always used to teach me. He had what I call dictaphone diarrhea. Those times you had dictaphone, he would he would dictate all of these little memos. I'd come in, there'd be memos on my desk of constantly follow up on this file. He taught me about the importance of follow up. He taught me to open my eyes and go into a building, what do you see? And it could be a dirty ashtray. Yeah. Uh, Anything. Just attention to detail, yeah. Attention to detail, do things the right way, okay? Don't try, never try to, when you do a deal, make sure it's fair, leave something for the other guy. Um, But know your stuff. 
all the time, know your stuff. He would say on the lease, what about this? What about that? I would say, um, I have to go back and look at that, you know? Yeah, yeah. He was a tough guy. Don't get me wrong. Moody, tough guy, but a good guy. And he he did things the right way. He was a de- he became a developer and he really he didn't really have the nose for develop. He was more of the attorney, turned into a developer, taught himself. Right, had right. some bad deals that I I witnessed and learned from, had a lot of good deals, uh, mostly in office, which is interesting because yeah. my background was in office, but I don't want to own any office buildings. Yeah, it's funny. I'm involved in office here. All right. And uh, it is a uh, it's, it's it's in a difficult place at the moment. It's kind of hard to tell which way it's going to go with uh, well, COVID. Post-COVID. Can, I you, can I ask you a question? Yeah. You, do you think there's Armageddon coming like I do for office buildings? Uh, well, from what I'm looking at at the moment, it does seem as though there's a there's a kind of a bifurcation of the market and there's the, the, the really good buildings will continue to have occupiers. But I think anything that's kind of secondary and that, that's not being properly maintained or updated, I think they could fall off uh, very quickly. And, and, and another thing that I'm seeing a lot of is around the whole environmental side of things, ESG and all that. It's, if, if your building is not up to sort of the, the new standards in terms of environmental sustainability and stuff, very quickly you'll have zero tenants with any interest at all. And so it's, um, and a lot of people suddenly realize that too late. And by that stage, the cash flow is gone and they can't raise the money in order to kind of upgrade the building. And so you're, you're stuck in a very difficult position. You know what the occupancy rate in Manhattan is now? Take a guess. Oh, well, geez, I don't know. I mean, I, I know our business park, it, it has fallen off a, a good bit, yeah. 30%. 30, wow, yeah. But then wow. I, at the same time, I saw Google had signed a big lease last year. And uh, so yeah. there are there is some activity, all right. I just don't feel that people are going to go back to work more than 65% of what it was. You don't have to live in the city to do business in the city. That's and true. Because of the pandemic, we are all, look where I am. I mean, I have an office in uh, Atlanta and, and Texas, but my New York office, I closed. You know, I have meetings like this or in Zoom without missing a beat. Yeah, yeah. And it's I just truth. don't feel, and if you look at the, uh, what I refer to as Armageddon coming for office, because what's going to happen is that, let's say a law firm has 30,000 square feet. When his lease is up or his option, it's time to exercise his options and say, landlord, we got to talk. I don't need 30,000 square feet. I only need 15. Now, the domino effect of that is yeah. that the landlord has to retrofit or re-retrofit his space. You know, the ba- bathroom might be on the wrong side. You yeah. got to spend money there. And, and then, and he wasn't, I'm not paying $80 a foot. I only want to pay $65 a foot because I can get the same space across the street. Yeah, it is. It's, it's a difficult place. And, and I've seen some of that taking place where tenants are looking to hand back a portion of yeah. their floor and things like that. So, yeah, it's definitely... It's something that I'm watching all right carefully. Um, in terms of the, you, you mentioned that, you know, there was mistakes made, that, that Bob made some mistakes. I mean, I've often found that the biggest lessons are always from the mistakes that you made. Are there any sort of, uh, sort of good lessons that you can kind of pass on to us that, uh, that, you, that you saw from, from your work with Bob in the early days? 
you want to talk about development deals or management deals or what type of deals? Well, development, uh, yeah, if you want to go development, it's, uh, it's an area that yeah, one of the Yeah, one of the biggest things I see is uh, over-projecting what rents you think you can get yeah. um, and undercutting uh, what you think your expenses will be, especially the taxes when they get reassessed. So if you're doing a construction deal like we've done, and in the middle, you, you have something, you're, I'm sure familiar with this, called the guaranteed maximum uh, contract. Yeah. So, so basically the bank wants to say, you know, that you're going to have all your subs and so forth doing this for a certain price, $30 million to, to build this building. And each sub signs that, yeah, this is my guaranteed maximum pro, uh, uh, price. But in reality, what happens is the sheetrock subcontractor, all of a sudden China's buying all the sheetrock and sheetrock doubles, which happened, by the way, to us when we built the building. All right. You're not going to put this guy out of business. Yeah. You have to work with them. So you have to anticipate all these, especially now with construction prices, you know, doubling basically. Yeah. Yeah. And you labor shortages. To, yeah. The mistakes that were made were thinking that not putting in a big enough contingency for what I call um, human, human nature yeah. or things, things to change. And we all try to do projections on the rosy picture. So the big mistake developers make is not anticipating the what ifs. Yeah. They just want to put in something that the bank can hold, you know, can, can, can do to get your financing. Um, there's also, you have to have the right team. Um, when we developed a project, we built a 21 story building in Manhattan. Um, we made sure, I made sure that every Wednesday at four o'clock, the team it was mandatory that they be at this meeting in person. So we had, you know, the, the mechanical contractor, the broker, the, the, the architect, uh, you name it, all in one room. And it was mind boggling how many problems were solved at that, that uh, meeting. Yeah. So, for, so for instance, uh, let, let's say the architect says, okay, uh, the city wants us to redo the, the, the uh, way that you, you know, that, that the ingress or egress comes in. So the architect comes up with a plan and now the, the contract, general contractor says, well, I can't get my equipment in to do that. You know, now if he wasn't there, think about all the time that would be wasted. Yeah. I got to contact him, send it to him, do all this other stuff. It's the a collaborative other, process. Yeah. The other mistake I, uh, that comes to mind that we made is, you know, we wanted our apartments because they were luxury condos to be all special. You know, people can pick out. No, you've got to make it idiot, idiot proof. What I mean by that is when you have a plumber, you have 100, 200 apartments, you want a plumber to take his wrench, go in there, turn it this way, go to the next floor, turn it this way, turn yeah. it this way. Repetition. You don't want them to have to go, well, let's see, this floor, I got to turn it this way, then this way. I got You got to make it idiot proof. So mistakes that were made was trying to make everything so special that the time it needs to, to do that wasn't anticipated. And remember, if you don't get the sheetrock in in time the painter might be on another job you might lose your painter right yeah, yeah. it's the knock-on impact yeah and then the plumber can't come in so those are the lessons that i saw which caused uh tremendous problems and extra costs in projects mm -hmm. interesting and so you decided 
eventually to to kind of go out on your own and to start doing this i saw you were you were running your own accounting firm with your partner tepper and like what was the when did it come into your mind that why don't i actually put a development business or or a property business together i'll tell you what happened it was a tax season we were working like animals really and, you know, I saw what these guys were making. And I, okay. I said, you know, I said, I'm your score. I, I felt like a scorekeeper. Yeah. They're making millions and I'm keeping score. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I don't want to be a scorekeeper anymore. And I learned enough through the accounting, through Bob, to say, I think I could do this myself. But I didn't know exactly how to do that. And then what happened was the, the person I mentioned, Jim Kinsey, uh, called me in one day and said, we and I sold them on doing syndications. I had the ability to raise money through clients, through other people. So we had three people. We had myself, Jim Kinsey, and another older guy. Uh, he fronted the money until the syndication money came in. And we bought about 30 buildings together. Yeah. And at that time, I didn't know much about management or development. But what happens is through the years of learning now the management from somebody and learning development, I now mastered and learned the skills that I didn't have at the time. Right. And that's why I tell young people to partner with people that have skills that you don't and then learn their skills and then you can go out on your own. Yeah. So, so and I also wanted support. I didn't want to be the guy that does everything. You can't. So that, that partnership did very well for a time. And then Jim and, fella didn't get along so they we bought each other out everybody did very well and then i went into texas in 2008 on my own formed a fund called the rolling cash opportunity fund and now i knew about development i knew about uh management i knew about syndications and we formed a fund why did i form a fund because i didn't want to now have a building okay 20 people put in 10 million dollars i wanted to have the money ahead of time and I didn't have the address of the building that I wanted to buy, but I knew the type of building. So right. all our investors said, well, you're not going to do um, uh, industrial. You're not going to build schools, but you can do, you know, office buildings. You can do residential. So the money was there. And I, as the general partner, I was in charge of finding the deal and saying, this is right for our fund. And we did very well. Yeah, I'd say so. Texas in 2008 would have been pretty good pricing. <laughs> Sure was. <laughs> sure was. Um, and tell me this, in terms of your own habits and behaviors, like what would you say has been the biggest benefit in terms of you know, your success and what you've like, what have you identified as kind of the key traits that have made the difference? This is what I tell every young person. Master the fundamentals. Don't do not shortcut due diligence. Learn to master the, uh, the, the fundamentals and learn to find opportunities overlooked by others. We made a fortune on other people's mistakes. I'll give you a quick example. Let's say you're looking at a setup, an OM, what remember them from a broker, you know, which is just a litmus test to me yeah. until it's verified. But you go and you do your analytical due diligence and you find out that um, water and sewer for 150 units is uh, let's say $100,000 a year. But you know, that's, that's really you know, a lot. It should be maybe 80. Automatically, I know water leaks are there. Right, just by... From now, if I can save 
$10,000 a year on just expenses, $10,000 a year, and it's a five cap environment. That's 20, yeah. That's $200,000. Of extra value. Increase the value of that building, $200,000. And that's what I try to tell people that don't understand the cap rate, how it works. So the next day, if you were going to underwrite for a refinance, you would value that 200, you made 200,000. That's just on $10,000. Yeah, yeah. I've had buildings where I've, because you see opportunities overlooked by others. There's ways, if you increase uh, op, uh, increase rent, that revenue a dollar or decrease operations a dollar has the exact same effect on net operating income, yeah. which, which you use to increase property value. You know, increasing property value is how you build wealth. And there is a big difference between being rich and being wealthy. Mm. <laughs> Chris Rock said it best. He said, Shaq, I don't know if people are familiar, Shaquille O'Neal, yeah. he's rich, but the guy who signs his check is wealthy. Yeah, yeah. I'm wealthy by owning a large asset base that increases annually and over time. That's the key to building wealth. Now, flipping houses and, and owning a two-family uh, apartment, you know, house, nothing wrong with it. But where's the large asset base? Yeah. What can you do to that two-family house to really make it better? Not much. But if you have 150, 200, 300 units and learn how to buy those buildings, the, what do they say? The world is your oyster, something like that? Yeah, the world. And, and, right. So I focus on, and the book focuses on ways to build wealth. And to do that, you have to be really educated. You have to be experienced. You have to find opportunities overlooked by others. Also, find potential, identify potential problems that are overlooked by others. Yeah. You know, that's why I say don't get emotional about real estate. Don't don't look at the curve appeal. It's numbers. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think it's all numbers. Yeah. Well, I, let's let's just get into your book now. I mean, and thank you for the copy. Uh, the first chapter immediately stands out to me because uh, everyone who uh, listens to me on social media will know that I talk about instant gratification. And uh, your chapter is "Welcome to the New Millennium," where instant gratification takes too long, <laughs> and that totally resonates because I can see it nowadays. Everybody. You know, they're all talking about cryptocurrencies and all this kind of stuff. And the reality is um, it's not always so, you know, you can't predict necessarily what's going to happen in the future. Whereas having 200 apartments or something like that, you it's a steady, you know, methodical increase in value that you can do over time. And it uh, it's, it's likely to kind of stand the test of time. Well, it'll, it remains to be seen. Uh, another thing that I found interesting uh, is your um, the foreword from Curtis uh, Sliwa um, of the Guardian Angels. So, tell us how do you how do you know Curtis? Are you familiar with them? Uh, yeah, well, the Guardian Angels. Yeah, my my, my okay. dad used to tell me about the Guardian Angels back well, in, in, in Los in Angeles. Book, in the forward, he talks about it. So I was <laughs> I was about six years old. He's, he was almost eight, two years, you know, a little or two years older. And we were on Remsen Avenue where I live. And at that time, we used to buy baseball cards and flip them. Now, I somehow had gotten a 1961 Mickey Mantle. And I didn't know what Mickey Mantles were. I didn't know anything. So some kid traded me a stack of cards about this big for that. <laughs> for that Mickey Mantle. I thought, oh, and I pulled over on this guy. And I had these cards and I used to watch the older kids flip. 
And Curtis was very good. He wiped out all the kids. Me being me at six years old, I challenged him. I said, I challenge you. And he's like, hey, you shrimp, go away. What's the matter? You afraid? So I finally said, oh, you know, he finally said, oh, okay, kid. So we flipped the cards and I'd say under five minutes, I'm wiped out. Oh, God. Now, I'm getting mad. I started kicking him and chasing him and try to punch him. And he's dodging. He's dodging me like, you know, like he's a halfback for the, the NFL. And he just, I'm just going after him so angry till I was exhausted. And I went back, I'm, I'm on the uh, steps and I started crying and someone taps me on the shoulder and says, hey, Sammy, here's your ba baseball cards. It was Curtis. That became a friendship that's lasted almost 60 years. Wow. Nice. So I watched, yeah, when we were young, we played stickball all day. We, uh, we were friends till about 18. You know, I went to college and he went off to the Bronx, the South Bronx. He was, he was always like a natural leader. Yeah. He's a good guy. Um, he always liked, you know, being up in front and, and so forth, but a really good guy. He taught us at a young age about uh, racism ahead of his time. Wow. He had, he had a, um, he would make all the kids. We used to go around collecting old papers and aluminum cans. And we used to sit on to get him to play stickball because he was one of the better players. Right. Yeah. I actually have a baseball up there that he signed to me. He said, my pal, uh, Sam, three sewer man. Because it was <laughs> sewers, right? So um, what we would do is every day we had to smash cans for an hour before we can get him to go play stickball. And, um, you know, I, I speak to him on the board of the Guardian Angels. It's a great organization. Yeah, yeah. We remain friends. He just ran for mayor of New York City. Well, that's what I was going to ask you. Yeah, because I saw I saw there that, uh, I mean, I, he didn't win it, but he came, he came in, in pretty close. Uh, well, he was the Republican candidate, but yeah. eight to one registered Democrats. It's yeah, impossible. It he did make some noise, but it, it, it's impossible to... Um, to win in New York with what's going on. But, uh, you know, he had, he had a radio show, WABC, for 30 years. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, the Guardian Angels he is... He doesn't sleep. He doesn't need sleep. Yeah, yeah, one of those, yeah. He's on the trains at one in the morning, you know, patrolling. Making he's sure, done, isn't He's it? done a lot of good. He's a good yeah. guy. And we, before the pandemic, I was going with him. Uh, every quarter, we'd have dinner with his wife, Nancy. And we would just talk about old times. Like, it was amazing, you know, because you're a public figure, people would come up to him and he was always nice to people. But with me and him, we're talking about, you know, Vinnie Scanzi or something that remember whatever happened to him, you know, it's, it, it, it's nice. And, you know, when I asked him, I, you know, I had other, I know a lot of other well-known people, but it, because we grew up, I thought he'd be the perfect person to uh write the forward he was glad to do it Very yeah nice. no it's it's it stood out straight away for me and um just getting back into your book uh there's um you were talking earlier about psychological due diligence um, yeah. tell us a little bit about your your thoughts on that well i think i coined that phrase i'm proud of it and <laughs> normally when people mention the word due diligence it's analytical in nature look at the leases Right. Look at the, look at the uh, expenses, look at invoices, you know, et cetera. But there's much more to that. I call it psychological due diligence. There are two personalities to me for every property that should be analyzed. One is the personality of the property. 
The other one is the personality of the owner. Yeah. If real estate's such a great profession, why is the property for sale? There are good reasons. There are bad reasons. Okay. And other things too. What's the reputation? Through my network, as soon as I find out, let me give you an example. As soon as I find out, let's say Joe Blow or Joe whoever, Joe Blow owns this building and it's on the market. I know through my connections that Joe Blow is a great operator. And before he sells a building, he's going to suck every single piece of potential out of that building. So what am I going to do different than what Joe Blow does? Yeah. Okay? So, you know, I'll pass on that. Whereas if I know that, and we bought a property like this, that it was owned for years by an older man who passed away. It's owned by three kids who live in three states that are suing each other. Right. Never put a dime in the building. Buildings, what I call a virgin building. It's never been touched. They didn't try to improve the building. That's my kind of guys. Okay? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So knowing that, who is the owner? How motivated is he? Is he in financial trouble? That how you know how how did you how is he in his negotiations and past deals? And the way I do that is I have relationships with title companies, lawyers, and I'll always say, "Do you know who this is?" And I get a lot of information. Mm-hmm. And the best time, best information you get is from an employee that was fired. Yeah, of course. But those guys, they'll tell you everything that goes on there. That's really important. Yeah, because remember, gives you an so, edge. Yeah, real estate's a game of hide and seek. Here's how you play. The owner hides every problem with the property and the, the, you know, you have to go seek it and find it, but it's a lot easier to hide a problem than find it. Yeah. Right. You know, as soon as there's a toxic waste dump under your property, call the broker, let's get rid of this. Right. Yeah. You yeah. don't want to be the guy that buys it. So you have to do both analytical and psychological due diligence in the book. I took it's a whole chapter of all these things from experience of how to uncover this stuff. Yeah, yeah, interesting. Very useful. Yeah, I mean, very useful is right. And it's funny you say, when you said that, something immediately popped into my mind about psychological due diligence. I think it's important to carry out psychological due diligence on your own mindset as well at the outset when you're starting your career. Because uh, as I was saying, um, there is, I, I find that there's two types of personality. You're either a gambler or you're an analyst. And the gambler will speculate and, and make these kind of crazy deals that you know might be very risky. Or, but an analyst, on the other hand, will often just sit on the sidelines and they analyze the deal to bits, but they never take any action. And you have to find some way to kind of like slide either into the middle of those extremes. And uh, have you done that kind of analysis uh, before? Well, that, is, that, that is really a great point. So in the book, I talk about this. When I was a little younger and the kids were growing up, we, we had a pool, a community pool. And I just noticed when the kids were learning to swim, there were three types of kids. There's the first one that puts his foot in the water and runs away. The second kid puts his foot in the water and he puts his other foot in the water and then he's in. And there's the third kid who just dives in. Yeah. And I think that's a hologram of how they're going to be in almost anything in their life. Mm, We're all wired differently. And if you can understand how you're wired, very important to your point. Yeah. So we have to all look at ourselves. You know, when I interview these kids to mentor, I ask them, where do you want to be? Where do you want to go? Like one kid, I remember he went to Wisconsin, great school. 
and he mentioned he uh, majored in financial planning. And, you know, the kid would just sit there. He didn't have what I call bubbling personality. He would talk more of the analytical that I can show clients how to do this, this. So I said, what do you do? Well, I want to have my own firm. I said, but understand when you have your own firm, you need sales skills. Mm. You have those sales skills. No, I don't like selling. You, so then, you, form, you have to be able to get clients. You have to, I, I try to use that just to your point to let him know, I want you to think about where you're strong, where you're not so strong and go there. Why would you want to go to a place where you're not going to be at your strength? So I try to identify the mm. pluses and minuses and, and guide people that way. Yeah, I, I do. I recommend to um, anybody who kind of works with me on a kind of mentor level that um, they should do a, a psychological or a personality test. And the, the idea behind it is that when you understand your strengths and weaknesses, you know that there are certain areas that you have shortcomings and you can go out and partner with somebody who can fill in that kind of gap. That's what we and, talked about before. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And tell me this, um, the, this, the deals that you're doing these days, uh, you're, you're obviously working with, do you, you, you're doing syndication and stuff like that still? Well, we, yeah, we, we, um, we still own over 30 properties. I've owned over 70. And I think I've done new construction, almost everything. Right now, it is, there's tons of money out there, no deals. Mm. You really have to be careful. And again, it comes to being able to identify opportunities overlooked by others. I believe, I don't know, you could disagree or not. I believe there's going to be Armageddon in the office and retail sectors. Retail as well, yeah. Yeah, and I don't see Amazon buying them all. Mm -hmm. I've been watching uh, the logistics and industrial seems to be just going to be very strong, very strong. Industrial wasn't when I started uh, in 19 of 2008, you know, I stayed away from industrial because there wasn't a big margin. The people paying $7 a foot, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So uh, yes, industrial is very strong. Uh, People are building science labs, science. uh, Yeah. Life sciences is the big thing now. Yeah. It is, but you know, if that turns around, you're gonna have a big space that you have to retrofit. And what do you do with it? Yeah, so, yeah. And you know, you take office buildings in, let's say, a market like Texas, where you know the community there is every three years, even if they have an option, it's sort of one-sided. Yeah. Because the broker comes in, he wants a fee again, even when they have a negotiated deal, they want a new TI, new everything. So you know, the turnaround is three years. And if you got to give them lower rank, TI, et cetera, I didn't like that. Manhattan mm. was a little different. So you got to look at the very important political climate, especially now. What is the political climate in the state or country? In New York, the political climate towards real estate is just not good. Right. Manhattan has an, has an invisible sign. It says one percentage real estate industry, get out. You're not welcome here. Florida and Texas and other states have a big invisible sign. Welcome. All one percent is welcome real estate. And you don't have to pay taxes. Yeah, I've seen that. Yeah. So Minneapolis, okay, just came up with universal rent control for new buildings. That's crazy. Nine or 10 projects immediately stopped. And they're crying. We need more uh, rental housing. 
we need but more then they bring in these yeah, hurdles to it yeah but who's going to sign a 30 40 million dollar construction loan when you're capped at one side but you're not capped on your expenses mm. or your costs so that's where we are today it's ever-changing i'm waiting thing for things to settle down a little bit we're not really we're sort of in a hold in fact i have so much capital being thrown at me to be placed hardest thing i had to do was say guys no not right now and what do you think the outlook for the market is which sector that's the good i guess that's the question you think armageddon in the offices and so what about in the residential side residential is very strong will it stay strong if interest rates increase because of inflation It'll stay strong. It won't collapse, but a lot of people lose a lot of money because right now, why is it strong? There's a shortage of rental housing. A lot of the actual people were, were um, cost out of houses. It's too expensive. So people are renting. Yeah. Also, there's a changing culture for millennials and other younger generations. They don't want to own. They want everything, you know, Shit. not to be not right. So there is a change and there is a tremendous amount of shortage in rental real estate but we have communities now where in the, i say in the last three years what i did was we had so much equity in the properties i didn't want to sell a lot of reasons not to sell but i got i refinanced my mortgages i got 10 years interest only wow at two and a half percent interest fixed wow just insane yeah so that's what they're offering fannie freddie uh, insurance companies now, a lot more people in the market. The financing is tremendous. And as a rule, I go where the financing is. Mm-hmm. You know, I always tease people that on my tax return, when it right says profession, I don't put developer, real estate, I put opportunist. <laughs> I am yeah. an opportunist. That's why I, I, you know, I go where the opportunity is. Residential real estate is still, it's good. But, you know, the, the cap rates are less than 3% on some projects now. Mm-hmm. The margin of error is much less. And you're taking on more risk for less reward than ever before. But there is so much money on the sidelines. We call it dry powder in the States. Yeah. That people are jumping on things. You're getting zero in the bank. Yeah. That's people, the big one. put it in bricks. I mean, the thing is, is I look at the 2006, 2007, the kind of run up to 2008, and I kind of look at today and you see this frenzy because of the, you know, the amount of money that's out there. And you have to kind of wonder when there's such a weight of money trying to get into deals and you can't. And and as you said yourself, you can't find any good opportunities. You have to wonder, you know, people are out there overpaying just because of the competition. And Absolutely. at some point, there's going to be, you know, the musical chairs will stop, you know? Great point. In fact, uh, you're a hedge fund, let's say. You have 50, 100 people working for you. How do you pay those people? Yeah. You can't get deal flow. It's all based on fees, right? So you might overpay. You might, you know, as long as you put your projections in there with all your disclaimers and all yeah. your, you know, risk factors and so forth. But it is a game of musical chairs. That's it. I have never, people ask me, where do you think real estate's going to go? And I, the most honest answer is, as Bob Dylan's song is, the answer, my friend, is blowing in the wind. Now, I can tell you if the wind blows this way, interest rates go down, interest rates go, you know, and I could tell you which, what, what's going to happen then, pretty much. If the interest rates go up, if the foreign money, uh, the dollar gets weaker or stronger, I could tell you which, what's going to happen. But I can't tell you which way the wind's going to blow. Yeah, yeah. 
that's the problem. And I don't think anybody can. I think the most honest answer people can tell tell you is I don't know. I just watch the variables. I think that's the important thing. And what I've sort of learned from my own, like I went through this big kind of collapse in values back in 2008. And I've learned that you, you can never really predict it, no matter how hard you try and how much you work. But all you can do is basically make sure you're in a position that if the wind does change, that you're not going to be wiped out by it. Uh, and just to be slightly conservative on your debt and, you know, never yeah, kind well, of over leverage. Over leverage is a real problem. You know, I will tell you on my properties, we are a little more than 50% equity. Yeah. And I, we didn't pull money out. See, my deal with my investors was to over a five-year period to a 10-year period, refinance, give them their money back and clip coupons. And that's what we've achieved. We have a tremendous amount of equity. Now, people always say, why, do you, why don't you sell? People don't realize that when you did agency money, there's something, a prepayment penalty called yield maintenance or worse, defeasance. Mm means if you sell before, you could pay millions of dollars in prepayment penalties. A lot of people don't even realize that until it's time. Yeah, so yeah. then you have recapture because of all the depreciation, bonus, et cetera, that you took that you have to recapture. So there's a lot of reasons not to sell and what you can't sell. But the other and thing then, is, is if you do sell, what do you do? <laughs> You're sitting on, on lots of cash. Right. And it's not earning you anything, really. Right. You know, we always look for doubles with doubles hitters. Did they turn out for home runs? Yes. Did I predict or ever think they would? No. I figured, you know, we would do this. We would do it right. And, um, you know, my thing in retail, especially when you do retail, all you're doing is buying a return on your investment. Mm -hmm. Rents aren't going up. The fact they're going down. So what we did was I just kept refinancing, not taking money out and refinancing, refinancing and getting a less of a mortgage. That was the plan. Reduce the payments all the time. That's yeah. right. So, uh, you know, a lot of people just want money and, and they'll pull out and, and the, they'll leave a good building into an unhealthy building. But if you remember, I talked about the large asset base. If you have a building that's in a great area and you manage it well, why you can't replace it? Yeah, yeah. Why would you, you know, there'll be ups, there'll be downs. I mean, I've been, I've been through just like you down times when values went down. When value, I was lucky that when values went down, I jumped in and bought. Yeah, that's <laughs> but, it. But, but um, you know, I look at right now, I would say the main thing is interest rates, but the political climate. I really look to states that are growing. You know, when we got into Austin, I knew nothing about Austin, but I knew 200 people a day were moving there. Yeah, it's insane. I'm going back to 2007, eight. I saw what was going on there. They're moving out of California and into oh, Austin. Oh, God, tremendous yeah. migration. Now everybody's moving from New York. Wow. <laughs> so yeah. um, there's a lot of reasons. There's a lot. Look, the internet now is, it, it, it's going to, God knows what it's going to be in 10 years. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, I just see the the habits of people changing. And I just don't see people that are going to go back into the office. I think the office is going to be an amenity. Mm -hmm. So if you have one big company that says you have to be here every day or another company that's just as good says only two times or three times a week, that's going to be an amenity. It's like when I got recruited from Brooklyn College to, to, to the accounting firms at Pricewaterhouse wanted you during tax season to work every night and Saturday. And I used to Lumen, who I took was two nights and Saturday. Right. So I, I can't do that, you know? So it's, I think it's going to turn into an amenity because I think people 
are now are accustomed to working at home and it's not going to change. Yeah, I have seen that what, what we're seeing is our, our tenants are putting in gyms and they're, you know, fit refitting offices and they're removing the desks and they're putting in kind of collaboration spaces and they're turning it into much more of a kind of a, a now, social virus, space. Yeah. Vi- well, social space, there's virusitis. You know, people don't want to, you know, be, I have a, a friends of ours, they go out, she wears three masks. Oh, okay. Wow. You know, it's just people are terrified and I don't know what's going to happen. If the virus stabilizes and stabilizes in Europe, then all the we'll let all the Europeans come in. That'll help Times Square, the hotels, help everything. Yeah, yeah. But I still don't see people getting on a plane and rushing to a meeting with a client anymore when you could do it by Zoom. Yeah, that's for yeah. sure. I mean, I think yeah. business travel probably, although there will be, you know, kind of closing the deal maybe where you want to handshake somebody or whatever. But in terms of the running it along and things like that, you know, the there's no need for that in the middle of the deal. I haven't been in a physical closing in 10 years. They, <laughs> even, set, they even send a mobile uh, notary to my house to sign the documents. So you don't have to everything go anywhere. <laughs> is done, everything is done. I love it. I mean, I hated waiting for a conference room, but there was a camaraderie. Yeah. Now, when you do off-market deals, which I try to get, I try to meet the seller. So there's something where I want to meet the seller because I could use my personality. <laughs> I can sit one-on-one with him and talk to him and say, you know, if he has a tax problem, maybe I could be, I could say you need a 1031. I'll give you all the time you want. I'll do something to differentiate myself, make him feel comfortable. That's important when you make a seller feel comfortable. That you yeah. close. You can't do that when you use a broker a lot because they won't let you meet the client and you're in a, basically you don't know what the heck is going if you're bidding against yourself or whatever. Yeah, yeah. So those are times where I probably might get on a plane to meet somebody. Um, there are those times, but they're far and few. Yeah, yeah. interesting. Um, so Sam, I'm just watching the clock. In terms of advice that you would give to a young person, I mean, obviously, re- go read your book, but what would you say the number one piece of advice would be to somebody who's starting out a career in real estate? Um, I would say to master the fundamentals. Okay, read, look, listen to different podcasts, learn, and really educate that, you know, that's what the kids I'm mentoring is. I'm giving them with the book. And also, I will plug my samlieben.com. We have a website with articles with others, and anybody is welcome to call me with a question, you know, contact with a question, and I'll be more than happy to, to answer it and try to help them. I'm trying to form a community right now, actually. Yeah. Like Clubhouse, yeah. where people, we can get people together with the same questions and have a community to all we'll learn from. That's what I like. Um, I think you don't, don't look at a property and say, oh, it's got a 10% return an hour, or it's got this. Where are you going to be in five years with the property? Mm-hmm. And Focus on building property value, yeah. not just a return. And uh, learn the fundamentals. That's the thing. There are fundamentals, you know. Get the rent up and the NOI down, yeah. Most people who, for instance, want to learn property don't even know the categories that expenses should be put in. <laughs> you know, we when I meet a kid, I swear to you, I give them the, what I call the 100-question test. It's a test, and I let them you know, do it. And they all get a 30 on it, which is fine. And then after reading the book or me teaching them, they're now up to 70, 80. And the kids love it because it shows it shows them their improvement. You follow? Yeah, yeah. 
What's the biggest thing stopping people? Fear. Yeah, that's, that's true. That's why my accountants and lawyers don't buy property. They advise me, but they don't buy property. So they're afraid. The way to reduce fear is to be totally prepared for any situation that might occur. When you look at a losing Super Bowl team, they, we, nothing we tried worked. They were prepared for everything. That's where you need to be. Mm. So yeah. get a group together of people that know construction, you know, who know uh, accounting, who know other things, and learn from them. Mm-hmm. That's, you know, learn from them. Get a team together. People would love it. Yeah. Uh, and Sam, a final question I ask all of my guests is, and, and this is this is slight ver- different version to what to what I've just asked you about the best advice you ever got. But the if you were able to speak to yourself starting out in your career, what advice would you give yourself now, knowing what you know? Wow. Um, maybe started earlier. Yeah. Don't sit in the sidelines. My first building when I was like thirty-five. Uh, maybe I had a little fear, so I waited a little long, worked out, but um, I would have started earlier in the process of not going through other things, identified real estate as where I wanted to be. Real estate was the perfect industry for my personality. Bricks don't talk back, you know. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, if I could, I might have tried to identify, I stayed maybe a little too long doing accounting, be people's scorekeepers, I knew I could do better. That's it. I mean, as far as learning and other things, I did all I could with my, the resources we had. At the time, you know, I didn't have billions of dollars to invest. I didn't have, you know, so, you know, I did as much as I could with what I had, that I can say. But I maybe I should have started a couple of years early and that, that would be the only thing. But yeah. it worked out. Thanks, Sam. Um, so, Sam, your book is called Harvard Can't Teach What You Learn from the Streets. Right. I'm going to put a link in the in the show notes. If and anyone wants to... SamLieben.com, and I'd be happy to uh, connect with them. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. I'll put... So, SamLieben.com, I'll put that in the show notes as well. Been a pleasure. And you. Uh, thanks so much, Sam. And uh, I wish you the best of luck with the, with, the, with the book and with all of your endeavors. Same thing. And stay in touch. All right, guys, it's me again. Just before you go, a couple of things. First of all, very quick favor. Please go and leave a review over on whatever podcast platform you're listening in on. Or indeed, if you're watching this on YouTube, then please leave a comment below or like the video or subscribe. If you have any questions or comments or anything like that, please join the Facebook community. And that is called Behind the Facade Community. I'll leave a link in the notes below. Uh, alternatively, you can direct message me on social media. My handle is Gavin J. Gallagher. And don't forget to check out my new property investor readiness test link below in the show notes. Finally, please check out my website, GavinJGallagher.com, where you can join my tribe. All right, guys, that's all. Go and do something awesome this week and catch you next week.